This week we are continuing in our Understanding the Gospel series, and we're actually in our second to last week on this series, as next week we're going to finish with just a concluding summary message, especially on applying the gospel. But that said, this, this morning then really, in some ways, is the, the pinnacle of this whole series, and I intentionally saved this passage here for last, because as some people who have studied the Bible have said, and I totally agree, this paragraph here that you just heard read, particularly in Romans 3, 21 through 26, it's probably the most important paragraph in the Bible. The most important paragraph in the Bible. And again, I personally believe that as well. And the reason for that is because in this one paragraph, the Apostle Paul, in probably the most influential book or letter that's ever been written in human history, the letter to the Romans, he here is coming to this climax of explaining the gospel, and in doing so, he basically addresses one of the, the biggest issues in the Bible and for each one of us and for our world, one of the biggest issues. Or to say all that another way, Paul here answers one of the biggest questions concerning who we are and our human existence and our problem and our futures and God. And it's a question that I think when you boil it down can be asked in two different ways. Two ways. One way which is more common for us to ask in our current culture and, and, and the other way which is honestly more in line with the Bible's way of thinking. And as for what I mean, so the first way to ask this question that Paul is answering which is more common way for us in our culture to think of it's to ask why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die for us to be forgiven or okay with God and be saved and all of that? Why? And to be honest, I know personally for me, that is a question that I had for many years, even as I considered myself a Christian. And I'm sure some of you here who are questions, who are Christians still may have that question. And not only that, but certainly, think about it, concerning our culture and non-Christians, this is a top question that people have when they find out about the gospel that God's word teaches. Right? The question is, okay, so you're saying apparently that God is real and he loves and he can forgive and we can have peace with him. We get all that. But why does Jesus need to come and die in order for all of that to happen? And, and furthermore, what's so interesting about that question is considering why each one of us is kind of prone to wonder that. Because think about it, we not only, we, or we think that way because it shows that we kind of assume that God, of course, he could have just forgiven us, right, without the cross or anything like that. And so we ask, why, why didn't he do so? And asking that, you can kind of sense that means even deeper that we all kind of assume, number one, that sins and wrongs aren't that bad, and or number two, our real wrongs and sins could kind of just be swept away without much issue at all. And so again, that's the question of this paragraph from more so our cultural assumptions. Why did Jesus have to die? But from the Bible's perspective, the question is asked a little bit differently and honestly a bit more accurately. And quickly, just for all of us in here, this is a great example of how we should realize, we should be humble enough to realize that how you and I naturally are prone to think isn't the way that people in history have always been prone to think, for better or for worse. Because as for the main question from the Bible's perspective that this paragraph is addressing, it isn't the question of why did Jesus have to die? Rather, it's how really can God, if he's holy and perfectly just and good, how can he overlook real wrongs? 
or truly forgive and forget about sin? Or especially, how can he ever declare guilty people innocent? I mean, how can he? Right? Even as you hear that question, probably for all of us, you might sense that's kind of a totally different way than we're even prone to think. Because we probably hear that and think, well, that's not really a big issue because he's God. Right? And so he could just forgive if he wanted without anything, just like I sometimes forgive. But again, we only think that way because we sometimes so underemphasize the reality of right and wrong, and especially of justice and injustice, while for most of human history, that was understandably a big deal for people. And for us, let's be honest, it often is a big deal for us as well, but only when we decide certain things are really wrong or when we are treated unjustly. But again, from the Bible's perspective, that's always a big deal. And just, and just stick with me. To further show this from the Bible... Listen to this verse from the Old Testament in Proverbs 17, 15. Proverbs 17, 15. The Bible says this, and this, is, and this is amazing that this is in the Bible considering the gospel that we know and believe. Quote, the Bible says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Let me read that again. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And I hope you're understanding what that's saying. And it makes sense, right? Because it's a proverb, because it's just clearly true. And the idea is that it's talking about right and wrong, right? And justice and enacting justice. And the point plainly is, if, if there's someone who's actually wicked, or who did something really wrong, and you step in and you declare them fine, or okay, or innocent, or righteous, meaning you justify them, that is obviously really messed up. Or, on the flip side, say somebody's actually right and innocent in a situation, and you come in and you condemn them and say that they're guilty, that's also really messed up. And in fact, God's word says, quote, both alike are an abomination, a nasty, awful thing to the Lord. And so think about this with me. From the Bible's perspective, that's obviously true about justice. Not just in that verse, but we, in all, all over the Bible. And so again, the question is, and yet, we all know, and everyone in the world knows, we're not totally okay. <laughs> we're messed up. And we all know that any God worth anything at all would be perfect and good and totally not messed up like we are. And so really then, how can he take the role of the perfect all-seeing judge and look at our messed upness, our wickedness, and say, I declare you innocent. <laughs> How? That now actually seems wrong. And now more could be said on that, but in short, those are the questions, church, that this that we'll be talking about this morning, and that, that the Bible gets into those things is why this is perhaps the most important paragraph in the Bible. Because here we're all going to see very clearly how it all really works. We'll see how we and, and who we are and our past and our futures and also God and his love and his justice in the gospel, how it all collides. And it is amazing. And it's the center of the gospel and what Jesus came and did. But anyway, so that's just a big setup to this passage. But now, before we dive into the passage itself, just quickly as for our outline for how we'll go through this, so our main goal this morning, as usual, but especially this morning, will be to just get what God is saying through Paul here. 
because it's so important. It'll change our lives. But in order for us to get it, we're going to go verse by verse here, and we're going to do so in three main steps or sections, three main sections, with the third section being where we'll finally see the answer to those questions that we just talked about. So, so three sections. And simply said, as for what we're going to see in them first, we're going to be in just verses 19 through 20 that you heard read. And there we're going to see the issue for us and for the world that needs to be addressed. Which then second will lead us to verses 21 through 24 into the most important paragraph. And there we'll see what God did to provide a solution to that issue. And quickly on those two sections, that all will be more basic gospel things we've talked about in this series a good amount of times. But that'll then all third and climactically in our last section bring us to verses 25 and 26. Where we'll finally see with crystal clarity why the living God did it the way he did. Meaning, why Jesus had to die and how God really became the judge who, while being righteous, is able to totally forgive and declare people innocent and be so on the side of sinners like us. And so that, that's where we're going, church. First, the issue. Second, what God did. And third, why God did it the way he did. But all that said, let's just dive in together and begin our first section. Here again, we're looking at what the issue is for us in our world that needs to be addressed. And I say needs to be addressed simply because this is something we can try to ignore, but ultimately we can't. And you'll see why in a minute. But for this, so we're mainly going to be in verses 19 and 20. But let's actually just read verse 9 of chapter 3. Verse 9. So skim your eyes there because it's a famous verse. I just think it's helpful. And this is kind of Paul in one verse summing up the issue that we're talking about with us in the world. So to begin, actually look at Romans 3 verse 9. The Bible says this. What then? Are we Jews any, be any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All right, so as you can see, the Bible's point here is that it's been proved and already charged that all of us are under sin. And that word under, under is a helpful picture because the picture then is that there's this reality of sin, right, within us and externally outside of us that is influencing us in such a way that we're under it. And so we're all under sin. And then in verses 10 through 18, Paul then, you can kind of quickly see that, uses the Old Testament over and over to further prove that. But that now finally in this first section of ours brings us to those verses 19 and 20. And these are the verses before the, the most important paragraph in the Bible. And they show us more of the issue we're in. And so we'll start in just verse 19 now. So look down at verse 19. Now we know that what all, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So in basic, Paul's gist here is that the law, the Old Testament speaks to everyone, including God's Old Testament people, about them being sinners. Right? And then at the end of that verse, you can see he importantly adds that quote, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And church, those are the words... Those are the words that lead me to say why this is something that needs to be addressed. Because you can sense the picture. In short, Paul is saying that we're all under sin. And that we all know that and that God's word in the Old Testament made that clear to us. And what's the result of our sin? Well, the whole world is accountable to God. Meaning we can try to ignore it now, but we still are accountable to our creator who designed us and made us. But not only that, but the picture even more so here is that the whole world, that we on our own, we're basically exposed before the presence of the good, perfect, holy God and that our mouths are stopped. 
Meaning, the picture here is kind of like our hands being over our mouth once we realize who God is and what we're really like because we have, we have no excuses to make. Because the truth is we are sinful. And one day on the judgment day, that re- reality will be made even more plain to everyone. So that's verse 19. Finally, it's verse 20. Look there now, stick with me. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so now we're not only just accountable to God with our mouth stops because we really have no excuses to make, but even further, we also need to know that in our condition, we can't be declared right again just through the law. Meaning through obeying the Old Testament good enough or doing any good works on our own enough. The point is, in justice, in reality, we can't just make up for wrongs. That's the point of this verse. And for, and for you and me in here, we all really need to get that. Because look, even though it is of course good, even according to the Bible, to do good and loving things, we cannot make up for all that we know is wrong with us, what we've done to others and to the Lord by just doing more good things. Justice itself doesn't work like that. And so on our own, we're in trouble. So that's basically the first section here, church, in our quickest section. And we read those because, again, that sets the stage for the most important paragraph to come. And in in themselves, those verses, though, are important to grasp. Because the truth about us and our sin and being accountable to God with really no excuse, all that is a prerequisite, if you will, to understanding and actually loving the gospel. And so for all of us in here, let's just make sure we really get and deeply believe this. That we created good, that we fell, and that before God, though, every single one of us, from our diverse backgrounds and varying ethnicities and upbringings and diverse struggles and areas we sin in more or less and still as people who are made in God's image, no matter what, still we're all exactly the same in that we are under sin. We're accountable to God. Our mouths are stopped with no excuses to make and finally we can't do enough good to, build our, to get our way out of this. All right, so that's the first section. Which then though, in this gospel good news... <laughs> brings us into this most important paragraph starting in verse 21. And for this now, in our second section, we're going to see what God did to provide a solution for us. And for this, we're just going to be in verses 21 through 24 now. And we'll read all of these verses here to start, and then we'll come back and go through them together. And so remember, people really do think this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. I personally agree. And so now, look down at your Bibles, and as you hear this, just notice what God did. Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what did God do? Well, to begin... Notice that the paragraph starts with the simple words, but now. But now. And that's more significant than we might at first think. Because the word but is important. Because remember, in verses 19 and 20, we're all sinful without excuse with our hands over our mouth. But, meaning there's hope. And then the word now is important because remember, Paul's writing this about 2,000 years ago, right after Jesus came and died and rose. And so the idea is, but in the gospel now, God has done something. And so the question is, what did he do? What's our hope and the hope of the whole world? 
Well, as you can see, then in the rest of verses 21 through 24, Paul breaks down what God did by kind of describing the same thing in two different ways, two different times. And they both center around this idea, as you've heard it now, of justification or righteousness. And quickly remember, and you've probably heard me say this before here at ECC, remember the word righteousness and justification or being justified according to the Bible, they're all the same root word in the original in the Bible. Just one's a noun, the other's a verb. And the only reason we don't see that in English is because in English we do not have a verb for to righteousness someone. It doesn't exist. And so instead we say to justify or to declare someone righteous and innocent. That's the idea. But anyway, so Paul here is talking about broken, unrighteous people like us somehow being declared okay and righteous and innocent by God. And so again, he talks about how God did that here two times, two times. And the first is seen in most of verses 21 and 22. So look there again, verses 21 through 22. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we'll stop there for now. And so, and so what's going on here? Well, follow this thought with me. I know that might look confusing, but I think we all here can get this. Look at your Bibles as we go through this. God's word says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed. And that's huge because the idea is we're unrighteous. And yet there's a righteousness, meaning the idea is something where if we have it, we can be counted righteous. That of God, a righteousness of God is being manifested. And yet it is a righteousness that is continuing on apart from the law. Meaning, if you're tracking, it is not a righteousness where we do enough good to earn it. However, it is, quote, although in the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Meaning, think about it. The Bible is saying here that there's a righteousness that is not something that can be earned by obeying the law, but it is something that if you read the Old Testament, it talks about it. And so that's clearly verse 21. Hopefully you get that now. And then, in verse 22, the Bible states explicitly what this righteousness is. And what is it? You can see it. It's, quote, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there it is. And church, that's how we, even though we on our own have no excuses we can make and our hands are over our mouths, it's how we can be counted right and made whole again. The gospel is God provides this righteousness for us in Jesus and we trust him for it. That's it. Right, and that's, that's basic gospel, right? And if that's all this paragraph said, it would be a very helpful and beautiful paragraph, but it probably wouldn't be considered the most important paragraph in the Bible. But Paul doesn't stop there because then he basically, you're going to notice, says that all again, but in a slightly different way in the next verses. So now let's pick up where we left off in the middle of verse 22 and read through verse 24 again. Notice he says the same thing kind of again. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, counted righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you can probably sense it, that's saying the same thing again, but in a slightly different way. Because first, he starts with that famous, for there is no distinction, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you've probably heard that verse before, and that's because it's a good, short, simple way of describing our situation, our issue. We sin 
and we fall short of the glory of God, meaning we fall short of the creatures God created us to be, creatures who glorify God and who share in the glory of God ourselves, meaning I hope you know we were designed not only to glorify God, but as we do so, we were designed to be lights ourselves that radiate with the radiance of God's glory, his creative, loving beauty. But we sin and we fall short of that. But what did God do? Well, the same all that falls short, quote, can be justified by his grace as a gift. Meaning, meaning we can be counted righteous, but it's unearned. It's grace. It's a gift. And you can see both of those really emphasize you cannot earn this. <laughs> this is a gift. And specifically, though, what is the gift? Well, remember, verse 22, we saw as the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But now finally here in verse 24, we're told that it's a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption is actually significant as it points to the Old Testament exodus and the Passover, which we covered as a church a handful of weeks ago. And so now the point is God made a way to declare us righteous by faith in Jesus. And specifically, it's because Jesus is our Passover lamb who redeems us. And so... All that said, that's our second section in verses 21 through 24 of this important paragraph. And again, you can see all that is well said by Paul for sure, but it's also pretty basic gospel, right? I mean, we're sinful, but God has come in to judge himself with a way for us to be declared forgiven and totally innocent. He has come, he has come for a way for unrighteous people to be counted righteous, which is why it's the righteousness of God here which justifies. I hope that makes sense. It's a righteousness that is apart from the law. We cannot earn this, and yet the Bible did talk about it. And what is it? It is trusting in Jesus, our redemption, our sacrificial lamb. And amen and amen. Right? And that is the gospel, the good news church. And just so you know, there's, nothing, there's obviously nothing wrong with just saying the gospel that way. We're just talking about sin and then what Jesus did and then talking about trusting Jesus. That is basic gospel, and that shows up over and over in the Bible. And often, for, for many of us who are evangelicals, meaning as people who love the gospel, because euangelion is just the word for gospel in Greek, for us, that's just often how we think of and talk about the gospel. And not only that, but that basic gospel is probably why a lot of us are even here, because we understand it and we have trusted in God because of that gospel. And so there's nothing wrong, again, with just stopping there. And yet, that still, though, doesn't answer the two big questions that we opened with, which really, again, are one question said in two different ways. And that's finally why this paragraph is so helpful and I think deservedly said to be the most important paragraph in the Bible. Because that's the gospel in basic. Our sin, Jesus, trusting him, we are justified. But still, the question is, but why did Jesus really need to come and die in order for that to happen? Or again, the question more so from the Bible's perspective is, but how is it that God, the holy, right, good, perfect being of all love and justice, how can he take on the role of the seemingly unjust judge and come in and say to wicked people, you're actually innocent? How can he seemingly disobey Proverbs 17, 15, where it's an abomination to declare guilty people like us innocent? That's, that's the question. And for that, church, we finally move on to verses 25 and 26 in our third and last section this morning. And for this, we're just going to read these two verses and then we'll do our best to understand the amazing reality that's here. 
And so all that we've said so far this morning has kind of been leading up to this. Look down at your Bibles, verses 25 and 26. The redemption that's in Christ Jesus, continuing on. Whom God put forward is a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So really get what's being said here. Let's break that down into three parts. Three parts. Number one, the issue for God, which is an amazing thing to think about. Number two, what God did to resolve that issue. And then number three, why it all matters for us and even for God. And you'll see what I mean by that. But number one, the issue for God. Number two, what God did to resolve it. And number three, why it matters. So number one, let's talk about the issue for God. And for this, look at the second sentence of verse 25. Notice what the Bible says there. Quote, this, Jesus' cross, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, God, had passed over former sins. And that right there is where we see the issue for God. And now by saying it that way, I want to be clear. Yes, this wasn't ever technically an issue meaning a mistake. Meaning it wasn't something where God messed up and then had to fix it or something like that. That's not the point. Instead, by issue, I do mean though that God did this in such a way where it was unclear for some time what he was doing. He did this in such a way where we or others could have come in and rightly questioned him. And what was it that he did? Well, quote, in his divine forbearance, meaning his tolerance, his patience, he'd passed over former sins. And that right there is what we've been talking about. The issue of the righteous God, the perfect, good, and loving judge, just passing over some sins. (laughs) Acting like they're fine. Saying that guilty people are forgiven and innocent. And now, to, to really feel this, Perhaps the best illustration from the Old Testament is one of the people that Paul very intentionally is going to bring up in the next chapter in Romans 4. Because coming up in Romans 4 verse 6, Paul's going to bring up David from the Old Testament. David. And why David? Well, because if you know David's story, it's true. That he was in some ways an exemplary king of Israel. But in other ways, multiple New Testament authors point out that David yet was also the one who did this awful thing where he he didn't go out and fight with his troops and then he lusted after and used his power to get for himself Bathsheba and then he basically raped her and then he tried to cover that up in so many ways all leading to the death of Bathsheba's husband Uriah and then it all finally ended with David taking Bathsheba in to be one of yes only one of his wives and let's be clear From the biblical account of that in 2 Samuel, which you can read on your own, that is clearly seen to be messed up. And in the biblical account, God sends his prophet Nathan to go and tell David how messed up it is. And it is. And yet, also though, in the end, God ultimately passes over that sin. He eventually says that David's sins are forgotten and forgiven. That David is ultimately innocent in God's courtroom. Which is why David can dwell with God. And so the question is, how can God do that? You get that? 
That's the question, the issue. Because it seems that therefore God is actually, at least a little bit, not totally righteous. Sure, he's righteous to some people. But then towards others, yeah, sure, he may reprimand them a little bit. But then ultimately, he simply says to them, actually, it's fine. You're now innocent in my eyes, David. You're justified. So that's number one on this section here. The issue for God. And yet, moving on, notice verse 25, that sentence there in the middle starts with, this was to show God's righteousness. And so if you're tracking, God somehow isn't unrighteous in passing over sins, even though it might have looked like it. And so how isn't God unrighteous? Well, that brings us to point number two on this section, and that's what God did to solve that issue. And what he do? Well, now look at that first half of verse 25. And this is the real meaning of the cross church said with crystal clarity in just a handful of words. And so, talking about what the triune God was doing in the redemption of Jesus, the Bible says this, so importantly, verse 25, the beginning, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so you might already be seeing why this is so important, but let's just Make this so clear and simple. So God declares people like David forgiven and totally innocent at the end. He declares, he can declare people like us forgiven and totally innocent. And he did that all in the Old Testament through just trusting in him, the Lord. And now he specifically forgives people through trusting in Jesus. Amen. But how? Well, this is how. Jesus was put forward, quote, as a propitiation by his blood. That's how. And, and here's then where we get the central idea of this whole paragraph. And, and it's, it's truly the center of all world history. And it is the linchpin of this whole thing of being able to accomplish forgiveness and declare people innocent while also somehow not being unrighteous as you do so. And what's the idea? Well, Jesus comes. And he does not just die in general, but when he dies by his blood, He's a propitiation. Propitiation. And that's an important word in the original here, which means wrath bearer or wrath taker. And that's what it means in the original language. And that matters a lot because if you were to read Paul's reasoning so far in this book of Romans, his main point has been that because we're each now broken and sinful, therefore, because of real justice and wrongs on our part, God, being perfectly loving and seeing all of it, he has real wrath. Or anger. And that makes sense because think about it. Just like if you or I were to witness someone that we really love being hurt and abused, then seeing that we would have to have right anger. And in fact, we need to have anger what was going on if we actually loved that person. If we didn't have any anger, that would show we didn't love them. And so it is with God and the universe except we often dishonor him and don't love others and live like we should. And and so this is just true, church. God, therefore, has righteous, good, loving wrath, anger, due to real wrongs and sin and justice. And yet again, if God were to, like he seemed with David, if he kind of just, kind of eventually just let our sins go, that'd be wrong. Think about it. It would be like me seeing someone I loved being abused, and sure, getting a little upset for a second, but then stopping caring. Whatever, it doesn't matter. No, that's unloving. That's, that's wrong. 
And so it seems to be with God. He forgave people just all the time in the Old Testament. And now the gospel is, in Jesus, God says he'll forgive anyone of anything from all over the world. How can God do that? What about justice and right consequences and having loving right wrath? Answer, Jesus comes as the propitiation. He takes all of God's people's sins and therefore all of the judgment and wrath deserved for those sins upon himself. And that means to be crystal clear for people even in the Old Testament, even though Jesus hadn't come yet, Paul, who himself was a Jew here, is plainly teaching that David was forgiven because Jesus took David's specific sins. Jesus hung on the cross because David raped Bathsheba. Because David killed Uriah. And for you and me, Jesus does the same for us. He hangs on the cross because of all of our specific sins. Or to say it as plain as day, God righteously, lovingly put forward Jesus as the propitiation for all of his people's specific sins. And so they are all specifically dealt with in love and in justice. And therefore, we now fairly and justly, and because of God's love alone, we go free. And so that's in this section, number one, the issue for God. Number two, what God did to solve it, the propitiation of Jesus. Which finally is number three to why that really matters for God and for us. And this now is seen in the beautifully written concluding verse 26. And so for our final verse this morning, church, look at verse 26 again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how, hopefully now we're all getting this because what's being said there, well, God did what he did, quote, to show his righteousness, meaning to display that he still and always has been a totally righteous God at the present time. And then above all, the gospel is, quote, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if there's, if there's anything to maybe memorize from this really important paragraph, I would say that's probably it. What's the cross? What's the gospel? God is just and the justifier. And what does that really mean for God and for us? Well, think about those two words. First, the gospel does show us that God is just, just or righteous. It's the same word. And again, I know for us, we don't, we don't really think about that that much because we subtly think it would be fine for God to just turn the other way with sins. But, if, but in reality, if God were a judge who just turned the other way to real wrongs and sins or who ultimately just declared wicked people just innocent, that'd be messed up. That'd be messed up. I mean, he'd be evil. Imagine a mere human judge deciding to just do that. And so the point is, in the gospel, we see God is just. The universe, our universe, has a righteous and just God, which is why each one of us in here totally cares about justice ourselves. But that's not it. Because then amazingly, second, the universe also has a God who then made it possible to somehow be just and also the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. Meaning in the gospel, in Jesus, the triune God accomplished a way for there to be, of course, real sin that's dealt with in real holiness with fair justice. All in himself, he sees that in, or he sees injustice in, in the world. He still has justice in himself. He has that, and yet he also has real love and forgiveness, which doesn't compromise any justice. 
And that's why, church, by the way, you might have had a, heard it said before that the justice and love of God meet at the cross or the justice and mercy of God meet because that's amazingly true. And finally, church, this is also why for tracking Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die if we were to be, be forgiven or declared innocent by God because if Jesus didn't, then God would either have to pass over our sins forever and be an unjust judge, which would kind of make him stop being God, or we couldn't be forgiven. It, it would be one or the other. But since Jesus came and he was, quote, put forward as a propitiation by his blood, then the gospel is anyone from anywhere with any struggles by accepting him and what Jesus did alone, they are totally righteously okay and declared amazingly innocent and loved now and forever. <laughs> and so that's our passage, church. Which finally, quickly then, just leads to, last thing, so two brief takeaways to take from all that. Two takeaways to show exactly what I think we should all leave here with and then we'll be done. So two things to take away. One about God and then one thing about ourselves. So first, concerning God, the takeaway I hope we all have from this passage is to just be amazed that since all of that is true about God and the gospel, to be amazed that God wisely, creatively, he's the one who figured out how to do this and to do this for you and me. To be amazed that God orchestrated all of this so that he might be just and then also the righteous justifier in his love. And, and truthfully, here's where I think we see the most devastating part of the cultural assumption that we all have, myself included, where we subtly kind of think that God could just forgive us without, some, without something like the cross. Because think about it, not only is that assumption, I hope you now see, obviously wrong when it comes to justice, but even more so, that assumption also subtly makes us not fully appreciate God and his plan and what he did and how he somehow made it possible to not overlook justice while also having such love. You get that? And, and really, that's the type of love that each one of us deep down desires. A love that is totally just, that cares about real wrongs and doesn't act like they're nothing and doesn't just want to sweep them under the rug. And yet also a love which at the same time is able to totally forgive and forget and so embrace broken peoples, people like us. It's incredible. In church, the point is, that's who the living God is. And we should be amazed at how he shows us that about himself in the gospel. And quickly, just as a brief application, that also means for us that we should be people of justice as well, absolutely, and at the same time, people of such deep love. And so that's the first takeaway, which finally is the second takeaway, which is more about us. And that's now for each of us to leave here and really understand that because of all of this about the gospel and God being the just and justifier, because it's true. In our world, in reality, in justice, it's true. That means for each one of us, Number one, that if we do not trust in Jesus, then we need to realize that there is no other hope. There is no other hope. And that's because if, if you don't rely on God's solution in the propitiation of Jesus, then there is no other answer to, to the real issues and wrongs that you have in you which really do demand justice from an all-seeing and good and loving God. Except the only thing that will happen to those is that you will one day pay for them yourself injustice. And so again, that really does all mean that we each need to know that there is no other hope but this solution offered by the living God and the cross of Jesus to be received by faith.
But then also, and finally, on the other hand, since all this is true about God and the gospel and him being the just and justifier, also means that, let's be so clear though, if you are someone who genuinely trusts in Jesus, who realizes that you are messed up, that you have looked to Jesus for your solution, then God's word is saying to you clearly that because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone, alone, you are totally 100% righteously secure and declared innocent and loved, justified. We, we all need to know this to be true and love this, that through Jesus and through Jesus alone, the living God towards Christians like you and me is both just as he is towards everyone and always and also though he is our justifier. Full stop because of the cross of Jesus. Church, that, that I do believe is the most important paragraph in the Bible. That's the center of all reality and God's gospel and that is what we'll be praising God and our Savior for forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.